Today's coffee connection is my DID colleague, John Paul Kleiner, who's responsible for our Canada office in Toronto, and who's also a historian with a special interest in the GDR. My name is Hani Geist. Welcome to Coffee Connections. John Paul is the creator of the blog GDR Objectified, where he presents his collection of objects produced in or related closely to the German Democratic Republic, GDR, or East Germany with the aim of providing a window into East German history in a historical and or personal way. John Paul has a unique point of view as a Canadian historian who personally experienced Germany before, during and after the fall of the wall. I was born in East Berlin and was only seven years old when the wall came down. So in this episode, we talk about our experiences with the GDR from our unique viewpoints. We talked about his blog, GDR movies, cultural artifacts, and East Berlin architecture. Our conversation led to the Palace of the Republic as one example of the challenges of reunification and how Ostalgie fits into the negotiation of the past and present. I hope you enjoy the insight and unique experiences as much as I did. And now, have a listen. My name is John Paul Kleiner. I am the creator of the GDR Objectified blog, a website dedicated to the history of East Germany through objects, but also through the biographies of individuals as well. In my day job, I am the DAD representative in Canada and a colleague of our wonderful host, Hmm. Yeah, we've actually started pretty much the same time. I think maybe you started a month later. So we've been both working in our positions for the past, wow, seven years now. So it's it's quite a while. And your connection to DAD even goes way back. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about that and your first experience with Germany? My father grew up in, I guess, what would be described as a bicultural household in Western Canada, in Saskatchewan, and uh, spoke German at home and English at school, obviously. My brother and I were raised exclusively in English. My father used German in his work. He was a professor of theology and world religions, but it was never forced on us. So, I mean, Germans are notoriously excellent assimilators. And uh, I was sort of at the tail end of that assimilation process. But there was a fascination with things German. I mean, it was a part of our cultural lives. There was some foods because my dad still spoke the language. You know, there was that connection. We had lost basically all connection to our German family, however. I mean, it was, again, a classic story. His, his one side of his family emigrated to Canada in the 19th century, so from Austro-Hungarian Empire, but they were ethnic Germans, and they came as peasants, essentially. They were farming farm people. And the other side of his family, my father's father was uh, the minister, so he had come from what was then Silesia, and his too was a fairly typical story. He was the eldest male in the family. All of the family's resources went into educating him, and he came of age at a time where it was a difficult situation in his native Germany, and the adventure abroad seemed attractive, and so he went. And then, of course, post-World War II, that part of the family is part of the displaced people, moved primarily into what was in West Germany. And my dad was actually, and his brother, in fact, were both DAD scholarship recipients mm-hmm. in the 50s. So it goes even, even more back to... I grew up, I mean, my job now, it's kind of some ways ironic. Our job is to make people aware of the DAD. I mm-hmm. grew up literally knowing of its existence and the possibility that if I did pursue things German or, you know, whatever, that DAD might be, you know, something on my radar. And my dad, you know, spent a year in Tübingen as a DAD scholar. Many years later, then DAD sort of was still around, obviously, and I applied and I had several DAD scholarships during my study period and then ended up prior to DAD being a coordinator of a DAD financed research center. So in some ways, I fell into this job. For me, it's like I couldn't believe when this Mm -hmm. possibility came open. And I felt in many ways like I'd been preparing for this position in some ways for all of my life. Mm -hmm. So I feel incredibly fortunate to be working with this organization. You mentioned your blog, GDR Objectified. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about how you started? Yeah, I mean, I studied, I did 
the sort of the classic North American path of German studies, which involves language culture. And then I combined that with a history degree. I was fortunate enough, I'm old enough that my first experience in Germany myself was in 1985 on a high school exchange. So that was still a going concern back then. And that was really a formative thing. So it was obviously to West Germany, but part of that three month stay was the one week trip to Berlin. And it was very much designed as sort of a political education for young people to understand the division of Germany, its ramifications, you know, the, the context of German division. And so anyway, it was also a cultural thing, et cetera. And, you know, four of the five days were spent, of course, in West Berlin. And then one morning they took us to the American sector to a you know, political education officer. And he explained to us, you know, the division of Germany from that one perspective. And then they put us on a bus and took us into East Berlin and tried to show us everything that basically confirmed what this guy had told us. I mean, I was 17. Of course, I knew about this history superficially. I wasn't particularly interested at the time, but I do remember the atmosphere on that bus. And I do remember like our sort of nervous energy as a bunch of teenagers in a place that was different. And it was, it felt different, but it also felt familiar, right? So there's this sort of balance. So that was the first encounter and it made quite an impression. I continued with my studies. I was working part-time. I saved up all my money, basically. At that point, I had decided, this was four years out of high school. I was working and doing part-time studies, mostly in German, that things German were going to be my deal. And I don't know if you remember the film, I am of the generation Wings of Desire by Wim Wenders. As time passes, the memory of that film seems to fade. I can say that at the time, that was an absolutely crucial cultural product for people my age. And it presented, for people not familiar with the film, contemporary, then contemporary Berlin, a highly romantic film in many ways. And it's the story of, of an angel who decides to come to Earth, falls in love with a human. And this is all takes place in Berlin. And so you have this angel who's all-knowing, or not all-knowing, but observes everything, all-seeing, who decides to forego eternal life to become a human. And it's a beautiful, poetic film. It portrays Berlin of the 1980s in an incredibly, well, there's, it's a, a gritty romanticism, I would say. And so I had been to Berlin, I saw this film, and I fixated on it and decided I got to get back. And so I saved up all my money and did an eight-week language course at the Goethe Institute in West Berlin in January, February 1989. So on the cusp of this mm -hmm. great change, no sense that it was about to happen. And we were there and there were people in my class from literally every corner of the world, many of whom had been drawn to the city by that film. It was mm. unbelievable. You talk to people and everyone had this sort of image of Berlin and we went out looking for it then. Of course, we didn't find it. So you're there and uh, then everything changes, right? I mean, it was an amazing experience for me, irregardless of the history that would follow. But I still had friends then when the change comes, basically a year later, who were still in Berlin. And so I had that connection. I got my first DAD in the summer of 1990 and went and spent six weeks in Freiburg, which is basically <laughs> culturally and geographically opposite to the East, while everything was in ferment. It was a summer school for Canadian Germanists. Mm -hmm. So we were there. And so I was following the news in the Freiburg newspaper, but to give you a sense of how relevant these goings on were deemed in that context, you, I still have the newspapers. I would clip them out. Anything to do with unification and the East's transformation was like page 14. Like it didn't even make the first three sections of the newspaper. It was way buried. Anyway, I went back. That was the first time where I really found this, it, you know, it, it had basically ceased to exist as it had been. But I, I was on the ball enough to sense that something was not just changing, but being lost. And I found that to be actually quite fascinating. So that was, you know, it was East Germany had to stop existing for me to actually pay any attention to it. And then over the 90s, as I continued my studies, you know, unification is happening. And I was, my German was getting good enough where I could start following the developments. And I really was quite interested in the, the debates that were going on about, you know, in, in, during unification, about the coming together of these two very different cultures how that was being negotiated or not negotiated. I mean, all those things shaped. So I really did, you know, immerse myself over the following years in things East German. And that was sort of pre-internet. So it was kind of difficult to do. There wasn't a lot of stuff out there, but I did, you know, begin to get an interest. 
And over the 90s, then I guess, you know, 96, I went back for a summer school at the Humboldt University, East, what had been East Berlin's University, an amazing summer school. And that was still the 90s, the mid 90s. Everything's in transition. Everything's in flux. There's still lots of remnants of the old system, the old city. And so I started exploring and I started collecting. So that's really what brought the blog to life many years later. I started collecting these things and the wish to reflect on them, share my collection. I just started this blog seven or eight years ago. When you say collection, what kind of items do you have? I know you have a lot, but just as examples. Sure. Um, so I'm not someone who collects uh, in any one specific direction. I'm also cheap. <laughs> not so I mean, I really, I like, I look for stuff that piques my interest in some way. So I'm interested in city planning, you know, design, socialist design, those sorts of things generally. So I have a you know, bunch of postcards, you know, stamps. Those are all standard things. I have a collection of East German soccer beer glasses. So I may have one of the world, you know, I would say in the English speaking world, it's possible that I have the largest collection. All I say that and immediately I'll find the four people. But <laughs> I think I have over 40 and I'm, I'm trying to recreate the, what they call the eternal table. So that's the all time standings of the East German Oberliga, the main number one, in beer glasses. So I want to have a beer glass for every single club that's in there. That is very difficult to do for a variety of reasons, and I will never achieve this, but it remains a bucket list goal. So I've got that. Uh, the two priciest items in my collection, I have a socialist block standard. It's called a, a Wandteppich wall rug. And these were decorative rugs, typically with elaborate designs, um, designed to commemorate certain aspects, dates, etc. And this in the socialist societies, this was a common gift or something you would find in public places. And so I have one marking the 20th anniversary of the founding of the combat groups of the working class. Those were the militias in East German workplaces, factories. So I have that. That cost me a little bit of money. And then I have a lithograph of a painting by Walter Womacka. He is sort of, insofar as people have any impression of what East German art, socialist art would look like, Walter Womacka was sort of the guy. He actually helped shape the face of contemporary Berlin in many ways. A lot of his stuff in the public space has survived. So people who've been to Berlin would know the um, Alexanderplatz, the House of the Teachers, which is this skyscraper, modernist skyscraper, with basically a cummerbund in um, ceramic tile depicting socialist life. And it has become a bit of a landmark in the east, on the unified city of Berlin. So I've got those two. So that's what I did. And then the idea with the blog initially was to present items from my collection give a little bit about their history, try to explain, you know, why this was interesting, if you wanted to understand an aspect of East German history. And then I was using it as an excuse to sort of jump off to, you know, think about these things in ways that were interesting to me. I have to say, in recent years, my focus has changed a bit, I've become more interested in sort of individuals biographies. That's an area that I found increasingly fascinating, the whole sort of oral history. You know, as someone who's come to this and spent many years now, you know, immersing myself in various aspects. East German history is possibly one of the best plowed fields out there. And there's a lot of reasons, I think, for that. But it has, in some way, it has enlightened us, but it has also helped to crystallize certain ways of understanding that history that have become quite established. And that's to be expected. The passage of time does that. We reduce histories into easily digestible tropes. And that's happened in the East. So people have an understanding or think they do. I'm interested in the stuff that provides sort of some grit to the whole polished surface. It's like, yes, but. And that happens whenever you talk to individuals. They never fully reflect the mainstream. So that's been... Can you elaborate on that? Well, I mean, it's it's just people's lives never fit mm -hmm. exactly. So, of course, you know, in the 90s, then you have the whole discourse around the East, which still persists, you know, the Unrechtsstaat. So this, the idea that there was no justice system. And yes, there's a truth to that argument, but it has become the defining, one of the defining lenses through which to understand the East. And if you talk to individuals there, many people really bristle at that. That is not 
how it's not reflected in their lived lives. So that's, you know, one example. I mean, I, because of my background, you know, I'm still, I'm a Lutheran. I go to church. I was raised in a household. That experience, the Lutheran experience in East Germany is also a fascinating lens, right? So on one hand, the Lutheran church in Germany and certainly in the East likes to present itself as, you know, the, what would you say, the crash of the revolution. There is truth to that. There's, without the church, there is probably no revolution or in a very different way. But as soon as you start digging in the surface and talking to individuals, that heroic version facade begins to crumble. It was down to individuals. It was very human. So I guess one of the things that I found fascinating about the East is the, ver the lessons about human nature and human psychology that are on full display there. It was a very human dictatorship. So, I mean, there's this desire to present the two dictatorships, the Third Reich and the GDR as somehow equivalent, highly problematic in many ways. East, I do not wish to you know, suggest that people didn't suffer at the hands of mm -hmm. you know, the real existing socialists. They did, they clearly did, but it was a different, a very different experience. And that, it was, you know, it was the, the little man's dictatorship in many ways. And it's reflected in the, the, the sort of the petty concerns. And that comes through when you talk to people, right? Their experience. The blog post about Matan, uh, since you may- Are you gonna disclose, honey? <laughs> I can <laughs> disclose. Yeah, I'm, so maybe a little bit why I'm also interested in this topic because I did grow up in the GDR and I did grow up in Matan. I was born in 82. And I was born in September, so when the wall came down, I had just turned seven. A lot of my memory is cultural and family memories, uh, but I, I mean, my formative years, it was a united Germany, but at the same time, because I grew up in Matan, I grew up in a family that lived in the GDR, of course, a lot of my memories, a lot of the family history was influenced by the GDR. So I found the article about Marzahn quite interesting. Marzahn is a topic that I've come back to. So Marzahn was essentially a socialist housing project. One of the major challenges facing the GDR was housing its population. And under Erich Honecker, who was the second leader of the state, there was a decided push to solve the housing issue by 1990. And they went great distance doing that. They did that largely through creating socialist housing schemes using prefabricated materials. So these were, you know, in the West, they're seen, although we have similar projects all over the Western world. The, uh, the socialist world has come in for particular critique for building these so-called soulless you know, silos, living silos, et cetera. And Marzahn was the first exhibit A of this. It was the largest housing project in Europe at one point. And I believe by the end of the GDR housed nearly 200,000 East Berliners in this district. And it's on the Eastern edge of what was then East Berlin. And the East was actually extremely proud of this achievement. And it was a highly desirable place to live. It had in the nineties in particular, saw a tremendous decline in terms of the quality of life there. Um, I mean, we can talk about all of these things you experienced it personally, but it has actually stabilized and become a very livable district in Berlin now. I mean, it still has its issues, but if you walk through Marzahn today, it's one of the challenges, you know, for people trying to get a sense of what life was like. Marzahn is a place that, you know, tourists looking for to connect to Eastern Germany would, you know, to put themselves it's almost entirely unrecognizable for a variety of reasons, simply the fact that you've had 30 years and the place is one of the greenest mm -hmm. areas you'll, you'll see in an urban setting. It's actually quite pleasant. My mom still lives there and, mm -hmm. and lives in the same apartment I grew up in, wow. which is really, I remember the first time after moving to the U.S. permanently and then coming back and it was, I think, November or December, so it was a gray day. And I came back and I stood in my childhood room and was like, this is just the most bizarre thing. Now I live in the United States and I come back on a gray day. And I mean, the one thing that is noticeable is that a lot of those buildings, they used to be just gray. Maybe they had some weird orange on it, but now they're all most 
if not all, most of them are just renovated. So you also have like intricate designs or just colors. So it's a lot more colorful, but when you look out the other side from the balcony, it's just green. And then you can, you have a view all the way to Schönefeld actually. So on a good day, you can see in the distance, even the planes take off. So yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating place. And if you understand what you're looking at, you're right. It's like the whole district has been retrofitted. All of these estates virtually in the East, insofar as they're still standing, many have been removed, have been retrofitted and have, you know, measures have been taken to make them more pleasant places to be. I mean, Marzan too, there was this program to downsize. So they, and in the East, the efficiency around the building meant that the blocks were built in fairly close proximity to one another, reducing light, creating all sorts of issues. And so they've thinned them out. You know, you still get a sense of what the project was and the ambition of the project, but I don't think you get any real sense of, you know, what Marzan was. And I remember when I moved out, of course, like I, I moved to Friedrichshain and I moved into one of those old buildings. And the irony is, of course, it was cool and hip to live in Friedrichshain and to live in, in one of those old apartments. But really, when you think about it, the apartments in Matsan are really efficient. They're really energy efficient. The windows are great. They're, they're well insulated. So you're actually quite comfortable and a lot more comfortable than when you live in one of those old apartments that are notoriously cold they're not well insulated and um, a lot of times they're very expensive and now as you said which is which is really interesting so I went to school in that district and at that time because we also moved in 82 so when I was born that's when the majority of those buildings were actually accessible and so a lot of families moved in and had young kids so when I went to school a lot of schools opened they they even had to build more schools to really accommodate all those students but then after my generation a lot of us moved away I mean a lot of the people that I knew they all moved away so as you said there were in the 90s and then early 2000s people just moved away so they actually tore down a lot of the schools I mean some of them also because of asbestos and and some of those structural issues but also because there were just no kids anymore and now because of the housing market in Berlin people actually rediscover Matsan and, and, and it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's true. It's so there's a generational, a demographic issue, right? So your parents' generation who moved in are now, you know, many have remained. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're overwhelmingly or disproportionately represented in, in Matsan and Matsan has a, has a reputation justifiably as a place, a senior citizens district. But as you said, the pressures on the Berlin housing market have, are, are turning things over there. So it is renewing itself, but you're right. I'm not sure how they deal with things. Now there's a shortage of schools exactly. and, and spots and exactly. now, they're, now exactly. they're, they have to rebuild those schools. And I mean, it is, especially now living in the US, it is very accessible. There are trains and buses and even at night. So I live close to San Francisco. And I mean, for the Western region of the United States, San Francisco is very accessible also by public transportation. But when you compare it to Germany and Berlin and even the Eastern part, it doesn't even come close. So So all of these districts, I mean, car ownership was much more rare in the east these districts were all designed to be accessible by foot and accessible as you say to transit so i think the longest walk that you could have from any of these residents to a stop was five to seven minutes Mm -hmm. that was the the design principle at play and inside the districts there aren't roads access roads so there's very limited car access you would park either at a garage or if you were lucky adjacent to your building but you usually had to walk a bit of a distance and everything is connected by a network of pathways which are now as you say completely greened the trees have all grown it's it's actually beautiful Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a lovely place to spend time and i think it'd be a great place to be a senior citizen because you have these walkways, you're protected from the cars. It's yet generally a relatively short walk to your supermarket, your grocery store. It's uh, the, the, the model has proven itself, I would mm-hmm. say. Of course, it's always uh, you grew up in a place and only when you leave, you really appreciate it. And, and certainly how accessible it is and how green it is. I've definitely only coming back. 
I really appreciate it now. I wanted to ask you. I found it interesting. I also、uh, saw the blog post about the Pellas for the Republic or of the Republic, and I think that is that is just a great example of East German culture that was removed. And now the big controversy is, of course, now they're building. I don't know if they finished, but they're close to finishing the old palace, the old、right. castle. And I think that's good example of. What it meant for East Germans to lose their culture and it being replaced by something completely different. Can you elaborate?、Oh, I totally agree. So the the Palace of the Republic was a, sort of the prestige project of the Erich Honecker era. It was designed to house the East German Parliament, which was essentially a rubber stamp institution that didn't meet all that frequently, but also designed along the Soviet style、um, House of Culture model. So it. In in the West, the Palace of the Republic represented the socialist political system because it had the Parliament, because it was where parades were held, marches, gatherings. That is how that site was viewed, and and justifiably, that was one of its purposes, one of its main purposes. However, for the population of East Germany, GDR citizens, the Palace of the Republic was, I've seen it described as the one place where social socialism actually worked. It had A myriad of free time cultural activities: theaters, cabarets, cafes, restaurants, bars, a bowling alley. There was a, I believe, a puppet theater for kids. Like it had all sorts of stuff there. It had like, and you can find these things. This is a, you know, a great example of the sort of ephemera. You can find programs for the Palace of the Republic, and it's incredible. All of the stuff that happened there. So many East Germans, and even people from outside Berlin. They, this was a destination to go to, and I saw the, the. You have a photo on your blog of that, the big entrance, the hallway,、mm-hmm. and I do remember walking through that and walking up those stairs. I don't remember how often we went there, but I do remember. I have a memory of at least one sure. time going in and then going to a show. It played a role in people's lives. You know, so those, that memory that you have is one that's replicated literally millions of times. And so, for East Germans,、uh, you know, it wasn't seen as necessarily this political site. Oh, not as, at all. Right. Now, like for me, it was a cultural center. Right. Exactly. So, so this debate is political. Exactly. And so then this debate really breaks down. You know, I mean, it was it was very difficult. It was interesting to watch who spoke. So the average person really kept their mouth shut during this debate. There was a lot of head shaking as to why this building needed to disappear, but there was a certain resignation, I would say, amongst the general populace.、Um, most, you know, traces of East German life were being erased. Why not this one? But there was not really much understanding as to why this was. And for the West German side, it was very clear that this building could not remain. There was a broad political consensus. That it represented something that needed to be removed from the cityscape, and they、that、used the city- asbestos. Which, I mean, to be fair, it was infested with asbestos, so it, there was、yes. a health concern. But、um, I remember that being used as really this is a health risk, and we can't possibly have anything in there because、exactly. it is a health risk. It's a really interesting example of, I would say. Some of the shortcomings of the unification process and the real challenges for any dialogue to actually take place between you know East and West on some of these issues. I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that unification has been a failure. There's been much achieved. However, it is emblematic of you know the the challenge that has existed in between the two Germanies in articulating. Their interests and understanding each other's perspectives. So that's one. So that's one of the things. Like my interest now, as I said, sort of these biographies. I'm also extremely interested to see how that experience of lives lived in the East, but also through the unification process in particular, how that continues to resonate in contemporary Germany today. And it's if you're at all looking for it, it's everywhere. It still continues to help frame how people. Deal with each other, interact with each other, and understand each other and the situations they find themselves in. So that, for me, has been very, very interesting and helped renew 
constantly renew this interest. I, there have been never number of times in the last 10 years or so where I've sort of said, okay, I think I've done it. <laughs> I don't need to do it anymore. And then I'll find another, you know, aspect. I'll encounter somebody and it, as I say, it's been a great, uh, great education on sort of human nature, human psychology, human wants, desires, all those things. My real interest blossomed when I went and lived in Leipzig for a year, so 10 years after the fall of the wall. So when I finished my studies, I got this idea that I needed to go to Germany, and I decided I wanted to be in the former East, and I ended up spending a year in Leipzig, and then went back a few years later again on a DAD scholarship to do research there. Now Leipzig is kind of the new Berlin, oh, uh, totally. where Berlin is not hip anymore. Now Leipzig is the new, called the new Berlin. Leipzig. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was, I can say I was there before and the people that I lived with, primarily, not exclusively, my, my roommate was an Aussie, an East German, but most of my circle of friends were friends of friends. And these were some of the pioneers. So the people from the West who wanted something new, young people who went East in those early, early years, and there weren't many of them. I mean, they, and most of those people have stayed and most of those people are not just established, but have, you know, significant positions. They had opportunities. They saw those opportunities. They knew the system, the new system. So it was an interesting group of people to be around. It was a really interesting place. Leipzig was just starting to come out of its catastrophe. The city was really, you know, basically a ruin by 1989 in many places. And by the time I got there, it had just started to turn. So the renovation. When you say ruined, what do you mean? I mean, a physical ruin. I mean, that city was falling apart literally around the ears of residents. And that was one of the reasons why Leipzig was the home of the protests. Initially, the the quality of life in that city had degraded to such a point that many people really literally felt they had no choice but to raise their voices. And so, you know, Leipzig was built. So it's sort of the German art deco school, Jugendstil, the Gründerjahren. So it's 19th century. It was a very wealthy city, and a lot of that housing stock hadn't been properly maintained or, you know, it, certainly in the East German period, and was literally falling around. So they were condemning blocks left, right, and center, and they were replacing them with these socialist prefab apartments. Leipzig was a, you know, a difficult place to live at that point, and in those early years after unification, it took a while to sort of turn things around. So where do you actually get all the, the things that you purchase? Well, I don't like to um, reveal all my secrets. Reveal your secrets, but... But, but there is this thing called eBay. <laughs> okay. The things I won't reveal, there are two or three actual um, sort of antique collectible stores, junk stores, really, in various East German towns and cities where this stuff goes to die. And I will happily spend afternoons sifting through boxes of press photos and what have you. I do remember that... After the fall of the wall, like right away, of course, you couldn't find anything that was produced in the GDR. I mean, house appliances, but also just products, products like food items. And I was there uh, for that. I was, I was there. No, I, literally that summer. So the, um, the currency union happened July 1st, 1990. So East Germany still existed, but they introduced a share common currency, the Deutschmark. And I went the week after it had been introduced. So I still have the newspaper article from the Freiburg newspaper announcing the Wehrmussunion and the picture of the masses of people going to change their money at the banks. I came about three days later and moron that I was, I was looking for all that stuff for the East German stuff and there was none to be found. Like it had all been cleared. Goodbye Lenin is a really good movie that I also like to show as a as a German teacher because this is really how people experience it of course there is exaggeration and but a lot of it is really how it was but then interestingly enough I mean at this point you've got nostalgia right mm, so yeah. now people see the quality in it and they're brought back and they're really popular I mean so, some of it you you see more in the former east and the grocery sure. stores but sure. some other products made it to the former west and they're very popular there now right. too right so I again I mean I happen to be living there as this wave of nostalgia so this is it was sort of a cultural movement in some ways I, I you know I'm not an expert on this My perception was it was a media-driven thing. The broadcasters, the magazines recognized an appetite in the population, particularly of the former East, for stories 
about their lives that were not seen through the lens of the Stasi. And it, everyday life could be celebrated. So there were several movies. Goodbye Lenin comes a little later, but there was one called Zonnenhalle, which was sort of yeah. a, a musical. Um, I saw the premiere of that in the Capitol Theater Leipzig and my roommate was with me, East German, my age, totally, you know, he couldn't believe it. Helden hmm. Vivia was another movie, Heroes Like Us, important book turned into a movie. Both of those had their focus everyday lives in East Germany. It didn't completely blend or ignore the repressive side, but it was an acknowledgement that not everybody's lives were defined by this. So nostalgia is really a reclaiming or an attempt to reclaim the narrative. In the West, it was seen, it's interesting because I think it was understood in very different ways. In the East, there was a smiling, you know, a reflection. This was our life. It wasn't all bad. It could be fun. In the West, there was this exotic voyeur gaze, right? It's like, oh, those Aussies, look at this. You know? I mean, it, it, it did reinforce in some mm -hmm. ways, some stereotypes, but it was something that all Germans could enjoy. Mm -hmm. It was a way that unification or these you know, different backgrounds could be understood. So Astaldi is a key point. I remember the East products coming, like that was the year, 99, 2000. They start appearing in the shelves. So I would be, you know, grocery shopping with my roommate and he'd go, oh, that's the chocolate that we'd had, you know, Bambina. Mm -hmm. like, no, I should bring one of those home. And, oh, it's not exactly the same. Nudossi, the Eastern mm -hmm. version of Nutella. You know, all these different things. Gold caption, all the products start coming. So nostalgie was an important milestone for the East German self-understanding. It had its dark side because, you know, as I say, the tendency there was really to downplay the repression and then taken too far. There are lots of people who, you know, wanted it to go all the way over and but Absolutely fascinating. And I, and I think largely from the grassroots. I think that the it was turned into a, you know, there was a way to make money from well, it. Well, yeah, of course. Of course. But but I think that people were really hungry for telling their stories and seeing their stories told in ways that weren't demonized, politicized. So I think that's what nostalgia was. But we see now, I mean, you're that generation. Your generation is actually defining the story now. And that for me is fascinating to see how people your age who are of the GDR but grew up in the unified Germany, for whom many of them, I would say it's that shared experience in the unification years. And they're only just, you know, they're, they've come of age, they're starting to have a say, and they're defining now the memory of the East. And the, one of the things that I find, as you know, someone who's historically a historian, I'm really pleased to see many young Eastern Germans recognized the importance of including the GDR experience in their self-understanding, in their identity. There's a tendency there to downplay the ideological, which I think is, while understandable, missing some of the point, but they are engaging with that history. They want it integrated. They don't want to pretend it didn't happen. And that was really the trend for a variety of reasons for the first 25 years of unification. It was a very rare thing to find someone in the East or certainly in a position of, of power or in the cultural industries who wanted, who completely understood that this needed to be brought in. So it's an, it's an interesting time to be watching these things. For me, also just sharing a little bit of my family history, I know intellectually that, and I mean, I wouldn't be here. I, I have U.S. German citizenship now, and my husband is American. I, I live in the United States. I have a career here, and I, I, I don't want to dismiss or I don't want to even suggest that the fall of the wall was a mistake, not at all. But it's a little bit more complicated. My mom was a single mom. She had a full-time job. And the irony is, of course, when the wall came down, all of a sudden people were able to travel, but my mom lost her job yes. due to the yes. fall of the wall and the yes. effects of it. So great, you can travel, but you don't have a job. You don't have the money to actually do those things. Yes. So it's a little bit more complicated than just, oh, it's the fall oh. of the wall and everything yes. was great. That's at least not with my family um, right. experience. Yes, and that, that, that is you know, one of the narrative strands that needs to be integrated into the understanding, right? And it's 
complex and I understand the lack of interest on the West German side to dwell on those things, but that was the reality. And I mean, your mother's situation is completely <laughs> emblematic. Again, women suffered disproportionately. Women benefited enormously from the East German system, you know, social supports. Whenever you want to talk about the repressions, all those things you said were not just, you know, in Marzahn, that was in the country. There was a system of support. And it, like you said, it takes a village to raise a child. That social cohesion that existed there was a real thing for many people. And it disappeared relatively quickly in the new capitalist social market economy. And that's something that you hear from older people, right? What, what do they feel has gone? What do they miss the most? People were not blind to the shortcomings of the system. But in their everyday lives, many people did feel supported and protected in ways that they don't. My mom was a single mom, so she had to work. But now with also friends and them becoming new moms and also talking to colleagues in Bonn, for example, it's really interesting, the perspectives and the availability of childcare, for example. Right. Yes. And then when you talk about the women's role in a, in a family, where again, my mom was a single mom, so she had to work. But even in families where you had both parents, it was fairly common for moms to work and for kids and for them to be able to go to a preschool, kindergarten type huh. uh, situation. And so you do have those differences, those cultural differences in yes. how a woman's role in the workforce, but also at home. And so I grew up very much thinking I can... I can be a mom and I can work. That's as normal. But in the former West, you have more of that very traditional family Absolutely. model of, well, we don't need childcare here because the mom just stays at home. Stay home. Yes, absolutely. No, I mean, that's one of the, you know, when you talk about unification, it wasn't actually unification in the sense that, you know, the path that was used to unify or bring together the two states was, you know, Beitritt, a session. I think this is a, a really crucial part of understanding unification and the challenges that have come with it. And that is, and, and I understand the geopolitical realities of the time, and I, you know, I'm not suggesting, but the West German constitution, the basic law had provisions for unification and unification was to be the result of a negotiated process between the two states, creating some new entity. So the West German basic law was to fall out of effect and a new constitution, negotiated constitution, was to govern this new. There was also a provision for accession, which essentially meant you could join on the current conditions. And that was the reason, that was the path they chose. But what was missed was this public debate and renegotiation or negotiation of what it meant to be a new unified Germany. It is a different entity. Germany is a totally different place now or significantly different place than it was thanks to you know, the contributions of the East to it. But that is not really reflected in the constitution. And it would have been healthy in my view for the Germ German society to have those discussions. It was a wholesale rejection of everything that the East stood for and was. And I think it's fair that you can argue that Germany is the poorer for not having at least gone through that process. I take hope in terms of the evolution of the discourse in the emergence of your generation who are distanced enough from the, the politics to be able to interact with their peers. But I do think that the fact that these, these discussions really didn't happen is not something that you can erase. The legacy of that silence will continue to help shape the misunderstandings that often characterize interactions between East and West still. I don't want to make too much of them. I think that the commonalities outweigh it, but there are times, and you've noted them, where you're interacting with people where you suddenly realize we don't see things from the same perspective. And that is sometimes often in the East, a legacy of the GDR period or more likely the unification experiences. So, I mean, I think it's never too late to start talking, but the so-called wall in the head, mm -hmm. it's still there. 
-hmm. sometimes and it still continues to shape things you know so yeah if it's not first-hand experience definitely second-hand experience because the families of course they still had their cultural experience their their social experience they are just everyday life experiences that they of course pass on to their children right. and they to a certain degree also share that with their kids so my generation and their kids even even then you you still see it this silence i mean i would like to emphasize is actually not just an east-west thing i mean there is you know suspicion and misunderstanding i mean i think you know these whatever i don't want to overdo it but there's also a lot of silence within eastern german families about this period so not just about the gdr period in some cases certainly but also about the the unification period i mean this was a traumatic experience for many if not most eastern germans everything about life was turned on its head many people lost their jobs had to newly orient themselves and find their feet and that often came with a step back in terms of social you know status class all those things i mean it's it's complicated but and then there's those those feelings of failure and shame and all regret and who wants to talk about that stuff right i mean it's understandable and that is also a hurdle so it's you know in many families that those years just you just got through them and you know who wants to revisit them but they have helped shape things and so again it's your generation that is opening those conversations with their parents now trying to understand better where they come from and you know what this history wrought with their parents sometimes it's not entirely obvious so you know we just got to talk <laughs> what is your next project well i like to get off the beaten track so i've there are a number of socialist planned cities so these are urban areas towns cities that were built in the gdr period typically associated with some sort of industry they're interesting places to go so i mean if i'm asked for a tip of you know where can i still get a sense of what east germany was like i would say eisenhuttenstadt which is just east of berlin on the polish border one of the socialist planned cities it is europe's largest historically protected area by you know, square meters and uh, you really can still get a feel because it's economically kind of fallen off the charts it hasn't been completely transformed by sort of capitalist real estate and you know economy it still feels vaguely east german and it has a great information center for everyday life so you can get a sense of how people lived and you know, some of that stuff and then wander the town streets that's cool so where am i going to go i've got a few few places um, i want to go to tala which is in the hearts region it's got some east german public art of note can I give some 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 movie tips? Yes, please. <laughs> so people who might be you know, peaked, have their interest peaked. There are three films that I recommend if you want to get a sense of, of East Germany and be entertained. Traces of Stone from 1966. So this is a film starring very iconic German actor, uh, Manfred Krug. Mm -hmm. And it is um, basically a love triangle set on two massive industrial construction sites so it's you know this was a reality of the early years of the east germany so that the construction years where they tried to build the socialist economy and this film really lays bare the frictions and the contradictions in that process the love triangle has as one of its corners a party secretary who is fallible and has a conscience and the film was banned as a result it didn't see the light of day it had a premiere and then was pulled and only after 1990 did it come out it's considered you know one of the great works of east german film traces of stone solo sunny from 1980 by the director conrad wolf so he was one of east germany's leading directors his brother Marcus was the head of the stasi the east german um, police's foreign espionage he was the in fact the man without a face so but anyway conrad very much had a face and uh, he had a movie called solo sunny which is a beautiful story of a single young woman who's a member of a rather low rent touring band who's basically trying to leave her mark in life so it's set in berlin east berlin's prenzlauer berg run down then 
rundown working class district. And it's sort of a character study of this really remarkable woman trying to assert herself in a, in a man's world. Beautiful film and does give a bit of a sense of East German society. And the last film that I would um, suggest people seek out is The Architects from 1990. It was one of the last productions of the East German film studios started in the midst of the, the, the Wende period. And it tells the story of a group of young East German architects building a district very much like Marzahn. And they enter into this process with great hopes and plans for how they can build something, you know, at a human level. And, and it's basically this story of their disillusionment as they encounter the process, the system, which simply will not change. So if you want to get an insight into sort of the agony of late stage GDR, the architects does a really good job of sort of just communicating that complete social, political, cultural stagnation that culminates in the fall of the wall and the end of the east so where would i find those movies are they available so they're, online they're, they're often available on the the canopy service so and many public libraries have subscriptions to canopy so that's way to do it they're also um they can be purchased through the ice storm i, I mean we can put the link maybe in the show notes i think you do something like that they have a whole catalog of these films with English subtitles and you can you can purchase them from there relatively small numbers and then maybe look on YouTube because I would not be shocked if some of these are up there those are my three film tips so what again is your blog address if people are interested to, to read more sure. gdr objectified all one word dot wordpress.com but if you just google gdr objectified you'll find it and there is definitely a lot a lot on there already and i assume you're happy to also talk to people if they if they want to contact you i'd love to talk to people <laughs> yes yeah please reach out this was my coffee connection with john paul kleiner the link to his blog and the dad canada website are in the show notes all content is created and edited by me honey geist if you would like to get in touch send an email to geist at dad.de Thanks for listening. I'll catch you at the next coffee break.